we're continuing in our series right now called Unfiltered. And uh, today, um, we're going to start off with a question that we're going to be answering during the service. Uh, and here's the question up on the screen. How does love, how does love show that our relationship with God is real? How does love show that our relationship with God is real? John is going to talk about this during uh, the message today. We're going to be starting in verse 7, and we're going to be looking through verse 15. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. All right, well, let's take a look. Again, this is the familiar refrain. John is always writing and showing his affection for his church, right? And I think he's not only showing his affection for his church, he's showing it for the church, right? Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Love comes from God. So one of the things that we have to recognize spiritually is that love is not a human invention. We are not the authors of it. We are not the directors of it. God himself created love and is himself, as we're going to find out a little bit later, defined as love itself. And so it's interesting because you and I were created by God in the image of God to be a reflection of the character and nature of God. And what that means is that we think and we feel and we do because God is a thinker and God is a feeler and God is a doer. We have a reflection of who he is on the inside of us. And so he says right here, let us love one another for love comes from God. We could just read it the other way around. Because love comes from God, we love one another, okay? Because love comes from God, we love one another. It is the natural outgrowth of a follower of Jesus to be a person who loves other people because we have met with love, because we've experienced love in a way that maybe others have not. Now check this out, look at this. The second part here, the second part of this verse, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's kind of a strange phrase, and I'm gonna explain it a little bit in a minute, but I want you to see a couple things at the very beginning. Everyone who loves has been born of God. So the idea here of the phrase born of God, what does it mean? In the New Testament, Jesus meets a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the religious supreme court of Israel in the first century. And he meets these Pharisees, which are, again, the top of the top of the most religious people in uh, Israel's history. And they basically, people look at them and think, who's the spiritual rock stars? It's the Pharisees. Well, one day, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who wasn't necessarily opposed to Jesus like all the other Pharisees were, was trying to understand what Jesus came to do. So he has a conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says to Jesus, Jesus, you know, like, how do I be, how am I right with God? And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, um, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are born again, you will not see God. And of course, Nicodemus takes this really over-literal interpretation of what Jesus says, which speaks to a hermeneutical um, practice that you need to understand. Hermeneutics is just the interpretation of Scripture. A hermeneutical principle is basically this, that when, and people ask me this all the time, Pastor Mike, do you read the Bible literally? And my answer is yes, where it's literal, right? Not all of the Bible is meant to be literal. Like for example, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, is he saying he's a slice of bread? No, he's saying, he's saying this is a metaphor. I am the bread that sustains your life, right? So this is the error that Nicodemus falls into when he's having this conversation with Jesus. He says, he says Jesus, how can I be born again? How can a man enter once again into his mother's womb and be born again? To which Jesus replies, Oy vey, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that you're so dumb, right? So, so what happens in that moment, basically, is Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, it's not entering into your mother's womb again. It is 
having an encounter with God that is so pure and so right that it's as if your whole life has changed, as if your whole life has been transformed. It's almost like you're being born for the first time. I think the way that I grew up, as somebody who uh, grew up outside of the religion and outside of our faith, parents that didn't know God, I didn't know God, we didn't think about God. As somebody who grew up outside the faith, I think this is easy for me to understand, right? It's easy for me to understand because the idea of being born of God means that there was a time when I can remember not being born of God. I remember not being born again. But then I had this encounter with Jesus through people like you that introduced me to the church and introduced me to Jesus. And then when that encounter happened, here's what happened. Something inside of me died. And there was an old Mike who died to give birth to a brand new Mike. And that Mike had a different set of values and a different set of goals and a different set of dreams, loves, wants. And then this new guy has all different dreams, new wants, new wants and all kinds of different ethics and morals. Why? Because someone said, hey, have better morals. No, because when you encounter Jesus and you're born again, it fundamentally transforms your very essence. You are not the same person as you were before. You become a changed person. And so when John's talking, he's like, hey guys, because love comes from God, we love one another and everyone who loves has been born again. And by the way, also knows God. So the idea there of the phrase knows God, there is an intimacy to this concept. Again, in the, in the New Testament, the Bible teaches us that we are to pray unceasingly, right? And the idea, you look at that at first glance, and you're like, pray unceasingly, I can't do that. I, like, I, I've got high-level business meetings that I need to be at. I'm a doctor, I'm doing surgery, uh, I'm a lawyer, I'm in court, I can't just be praying all the time. I'm a mom who's got a kid in front of me, mom, 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 mom. You know, like, I just, I can't, I, want, I pray, dear God, please help me not to kill my child, right? Like, like, th- like that's, but that is it, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that we have to stop and go, okay, let's have prayer time. It means that as you're walking through your daily life, you're in communion with God, that he's he's communicating his will to you, but you're also talking to him. So in the middle of the business meeting, you're saying, God, please let this work out for the best of both of us. Let it be mutually beneficial. And maybe God also, let there be an opportunity for ministry and relationship to be built here. In the moments when the kids just be a mom, 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 you're able to say, God, please help me to have patience because my goal is to raise this child and not put him in the grave. And uh, I just, like, I, I want to do that. So there's always a communication that's taking place, always a communication that's taking place. Why? Because we communicate with those we love. We're connected. And that's what it means. So he's saying everyone who loves uh, has been born again. And those people who have been born again, they walk with God on a daily kind of basis. But it's interesting because this idea of love coming from God is that we are a steward of God's love for the world. And what that means, basically, and remember our definition of stewardship, stewardship is temporary management over something that belongs to someone else. Temporary management of something that belongs to someone else. Even the love in my heart is temporarily given to me by God for the purpose of blessing you, of blessing my family, and of blessing every person that I come across, right? We are stewards of it. It's temporary, and it's not a given that we're always going to love, but God's given to us right now. We steward that in a way that helps the world around us. I want you to see a a principle that I think is super helpful. Here it is up on the screen. Healthy relationships have the capacity to give and to receive love. Healthy relationships have the capacity to give and to receive love. And what that means basically is this. For some of you, you you are, to to give love, you got no problem with that. You're just like all about giving love, right? But if you've been in a relationship where you're the giver, but you never actually receive 
what happens over time is there's a cumulative effect that builds up and you feel resentful and angry and frustrated. That's not a healthy relationship. There needs to be some expression of that. We need to have conversation and boundaries, right? But we're supposed to be able to give and we're supposed to be able to receive in our relationship with other people. Listen, I have a friend um, who is, I love this guy. He's fantastic, but he cannot receive anything. He's a giver. He'll go out and do things and then boil over over time when no one gives back to him because he can't receive anything. But, but, here's, but here's what happens. Here's what happens. I will like test it. My wife and I will test it. I will give him a birthday gift or we'll take him out and we'll pay for his meal or do something like that. You know what happens real soon after that? He invites us out to take us out for a meal and he gives me a gift that's equal or greater value, Right? Do you know why? Because he's a scales guy. He's trying, to, he's, trying to, he's trying to make sure that all this is balanced out in the end. But the problem is that's not what it means to receive. Some of you give real well, but you don't receive real well. And I would tell you right now that a big part of the Christian life is receiving the blessings that God's pouring out on you. The Lord is constantly opening doors for us and the Lord is constantly giving us more than we deserve. And I think sometimes we just need to sit back and not go, oh no, I don't deserve any of this. Because if you didn't deserve it, the Lord wouldn't have poured it out on you. He loves you and he's blessing you for a very specific reason. So receive it and be grateful for it. That's what the Bible says. Just be grateful for it. In the same way, the relationship that we just talked about that's here, this this horizontal relationship, is the same relationship that we have vertically as well. And that relationship is a relationship where you and I are giving to God. We do it all the time. We give him our finances. We give him our hearts. We give him our time. We give him our service. We give him our children. We give him our marriages. We give him everything. Why? Because all of life is a form of stewardship. And we're constantly giving it back to the Lord. But at times, we have to be willing to receive that. We have to be willing to say, God, I receive the beautiful and wonderful things that you have given to me. But take a look. John says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Certainly what he's not saying here is that just because any, like everyone or anyone, this is a universally inclusive statement. It means everybody, right? Everybody who loves has been born of God. Okay, so that's a strange thing to say though, right? When you really look at it for a moment, it seems like what he's saying is, if you love someone or something, then you have been born of God. I wanna introduce you to two people that I love, Max and Macy. This is Max and Macy. These are are my cats. And uh, Max is is a uh, receiver. I mean, he's he's a giver rather. He's a giver. Every time Macy is just sitting around by herself, he comes up and he's sweet, starts, you know, like, grooming her and kissing her. It's the sweetest thing in the world. Max, Max is also a Maine Coon, uh, which means he's an enormous sized cat. Maine Coons can get this big and this tall. Like they're enormous, right? They can be like 60, 70 pounds. It's like having a cheetah in your house. And, uh, and, then, and then Macy, on the other hand, and Max has, he's been declawed because when we got him, you know, Pottery Barn. And uh, so when we got, when we got, when we got him, uh, we had him declawed. That's not a thing they do anymore. So, so when we got Macy, she is not declawed, okay? So Max is always a kisser, but Macy is not a receiver. She does not, she's not a giver and she's not a great receiver. But so in the middle of the night, like seven o'clock at night, which is the middle of the night for me because I'm old, or, or like nine, 10, 11, somewhere, somewhere along the way, Macy starts stalking Max. And because Max doesn't have claws, he is like twice her size, but it's like, it's like boxing with, you know, somebody holding a pillow, you know, it's like he's got nothing, right? But she just comes on and jumps on him and she just, she is a witch, I mean, nonstop, like she is just terrible. She's not a giver at all. That's all I wanted to say about that. Um, <laughs> but here's, 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 here's verse eight is a contrast. Verse eight is a contrast to that. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
So the first part of it is, listen, because God loved us, we love other people. Then verse eight stands in contrast to it. And that contrast is that if you don't love, then you don't love God, right? You don't know God. Whoever does not love does not love, love God because what? God is love. This phrase, God is love, we can't be reductionistic with it. This is an error sometimes people make when they read the Bible. In other words, you take one attribute of God, like his love, and say that's the totality of who he is. No, no. He's based, John is basically saying God is not less than love, but he's so much more than that, right? He's also mercy, grace, and peace. He's also judgment. He's also, uh, um, he's also power and authority. He's all, all kinds of things. So whoever does not know God, whoever does not love does not know God. So in the first century, there was a very, very different way uh, that Christians defined deep spirituality. The way that they defined deep spirituality was very different than the way that we do today. Today, we have a very activistic approach to deep spirituality. In other words, the way that we define somebody who's spiritually mature, somebody who's on the right track is what are you for and what are you against? I'm for this party, I'm against that party. I'm for that party, I'm against this party. I'm for that moral issue or not this moral issue. And that's how we define it, which is very cheap and very easy because all you have to do is say, I'm for it. You never actually need to do anything about it, okay? In the first century, in the first century, it was so unthinkable that whoever does not love clearly does not know God. For them, they defined their relationship with God being born again as the overflow of love out of the heart of the Christian. Now, it's fascinating because if you go back and you look at Roman history, the first century, second century, third century, if you go back and look at the first 300 years of Christianity, what took place was Christians were amazing lovers of people who hated them, amazing lovers of people who hated them and actually persecuted them. In the early Roman empire, they didn't have pandemics, they had plagues. And so what would happen is instead of our modern medicine where we can like crush something like, you know, a pandemic, they didn't have that. And as a result, death rates were sometimes six or 70% when things swept through Europe or swept through Asia. And as a result, what ended up taking place is that many of the people in Rome, the politicians and all of the religious people, they left and went to their you know, villas out in the country. Christians stayed when people were dying and took care of the dying. We stayed and we buried the dead. Many of the Christians that did that died because of that. You know why what was different? Because at the core of early Christianity was the idea that we're called to self-sacrifice and, and to, to die to self. And that's fundamentally missing in today's world, in today's church. And the reason why it's missing is because we've substituted it with a cheap version of, I can check a box, I'm this or I'm that. And that actually never transforms our heart because sacrifice is what does that. And so as we're kind of moving into the future, as we're moving into like the future of grace and the future of, of, of Central Florida, we're gonna talk about ways in which we're doing some of this in the fall. We're gonna be doing some more of this in the fall. But we have to think differently about what it means to be spiritually mature. Being spiritually mature doesn't mean that you check the right issue box. That's not it, guys. It never was. All the same issues that exist today existed in the Roman Empire in the first century in a worse form, in a more violent way. And so it's not that they didn't have the same problems that we do. It's that they didn't see or perceive the same problems in the same way. They saw that their solution to that would be laying their life down. And sometimes that was not just a metaphor. It was an actual thing. Verse 9 says it like this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Let's look at it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
So John is basically talking about something really important. Like, and, and it's this, it's just what we'll just stop right here. This is how God showed his love. This is how did God show his love? How does God show his love to us today? Like you might think about all kinds of different things. Let's, let's, let's take a look at some of them. What are some of the ways in which God could show his love? Well, he could show his love to us by making us rich or strong or beautiful or happy. Some of you are rich, strong, beautiful, and happy. You're like the, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. That's me. <laughs> Hashtag blessed, you know, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, he did. He, I mean, like some of you have some of those, some of you have all of those things and those are good things. But, but for some reason, John didn't choose those and God didn't choose those as these are the things that are gonna solve the problems of your life. You know, because there are people who are super rich, but spiritually empty. There are people who are really beautiful, but feel ugly on the inside. So you can be all of these things and it net, net, you don't actually live a transformed life. So what is it that's gonna make us different? I thought, man, maybe it's not that. It's things like solving poverty, stopping wars or ending mental illness. Those would be giant societal transformational things. If we can, if we can end poverty and we can stop wars and we can end mental illness, that would be a gigantic thing. And here's what I'm gonna tell you. I believe God will do that. I believe God will do that. I'm gonna argue that that's exactly what he will do one day. This side of heaven, that will not be accomplished. But when we see the kingdom of God face to face, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain because the old order of things has died. It's almost as if God takes the book, which is all of human history, turns the page and says, never again shall there be suffering. Never again will there be wars. Never again will there be poverty. Never again will you be emotionally unstable. I will be everything for you. I will be all you need and you will be whole for the first time. It's where we are headed, but it's not where we are. So what are we to do? And again, I would argue that I think he is solving these things in little pockets through his people. God shows up when we show up. God works through us. Can God work independently of mankind? 100% yes. God is able to do anything and everything that he desires to do. But with that said, God desires to work through humanity to solve the problems. And specifically, he desires to work through the church to do it. I want you to see this. Right now, we saw poverty with the people who are closest to us when we are generous people. We don't hold on to everything that we own because this world is not everything. We share it with those that we come across that need something else. We, we look to be peacemakers in the world as Christians. Jesus said, blessed Makarios are the peacemakers. Blessed or happy are the peacemakers. So, so we're not the people who rage on the front lines. We're not the people who walk around angry all the time. We're not the people who have bad attitudes every day of the week. It's not what is Christian. That doesn't mean you can't be brokenhearted. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you can't have seasons where, you know, I go through really, really difficult times. That's true. That's real. And the church is here for you but we are the display case of the glory of God in his world. People are to look at you and think, wow, look how God works through her. So we are to, we are to end mental, how are we doing that right now? Man, this counseling thing that we got going on here at Grace, this is like amazing. I mean, we, we're now just hired our 13th therapist here. 
listen, that is baby steps right now. We just did, in the last like five months, we did 4,000 hours of counseling. That's baby steps to where we're just starting right now. Why are we doing that, Pastor Mike? Is it just because you have a counseling background? Like, why are you doing it? No, here's why. Many of you are here right now because you came from a church that was busted up, bad decisions, or pastor failed in some way. And you know what? You're the healthiest ones because you're still here. A lot of your friends that you know, they said, forget it, I'm out. Not with God, not with Jesus, with the church. We have to change. We have to change the reputation of the church in the city of Orlando. I'm not called to do that in West Africa or Asia. I'm called to do that here in Central Florida. God birthed me here, raised this ministry up here, called us together here for the purpose of being a display case in the city of Orlando. We're not perfect, but we're healthy. And that is what we're shooting for. Okay, we want to be able to help restore the reputation in Central Florida. And so how do we do that? We do it like the first century did it. We're there to pick up the pieces of a wrecked civilization. We're there to pick up the pieces of a world that's falling apart. So when someone walks in sin and then they experience the consequences of that, we're there to say, hey, let me help you up. I know that you messed up, but I still love you. And the Lord loves you. And he's 100% with you. And that's how you change a person's life. The reason why we're doing all, and I've got all, we've got all of this stuff to talk to you about in the fall, all this stuff that's coming down the road that we're just gonna explode this stuff in central Florida. We're not gonna be the people yelling about the social problems of our world. We're just gonna go and solve them. And that happens person by person by person by person. We're gonna be like the church was, the church that early, the early church that basically sacrificed to make a difference for the people around them. We are called to be peacemakers. Let's read verse 10. It says this, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So so let's take a look at this. This is love. So in other words, this is the definition of love according to John here. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Let me tell you why that's so important, okay? Again, having grown up outside the church, I remember very clearly what it's like to have not loved God. I never thought about it. It's really hard for my brain to get around now, but I I spent decades never thinking about God ever once. I mean, when somebody would say, do you believe in God? I'd be like, yeah, and then on to the next thing. Just like a lot of people in our country, right? Just like, yeah, generally, sure, okay. But what did that mean to me? Absolutely nothing. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So what's beautiful about this is that this is the deepest form of love that you can find this side of heaven. And it's when someone looks at you and says, not I see all the beautiful and wonderful things about you and I wanna be with you, but when they see the hard and the ugly things about you and they say, I still choose you. I choose you even though you fell down. I choose you even though you're broken. I choose you even though you rebel against God. I choose you. That's what, that's what he's saying right here. Here's what love is. We didn't love God while we hated him, while we walked in rebellion, while we did our own thing, while we were doing our own things, while we, while we weren't interested in him, while we didn't even think about him, while there's no care in the world, God loved us. He chose you even before you changed. And for some of you in the room, you need to know that that's currently your status right now. You're not a follower of Jesus and you're separated from him. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute, but you're separated from him. But his desire is not to be separated from you. The only thing that separates you from God right now is you. And you get to make that choice to say, God, I no longer wanna be separated from you. And we're gonna talk about that next weekend. And if you're here, I want you to be here for that. It's gonna be super helpful. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. So it's interesting. 
I mean, God didn't actually come forward and say, you know what? Yes, fixing poverty, fixing wars, and fixing mental illness. That is the way that everything's going to work out. He didn't do that. So how did he do it? Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And how did he do it? By sending his son. So somehow, all of those things we just talked about, about being beautiful and successful and rich and solving wars and poverty and mental illness, none of those things, God looked at the world and said, this is what I need to do to fix the world. Instead, he said, the only way to fix the world is I'm going to send my son. And he is going to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. I want you to think about it this way, like Bible words like atonement, what does that mean? Think about it like this. It's like a mediator between you and someone else. Every, and we talked about this last week, every relationship has boundaries. Now, different relationships draw the boundaries in different places, right? We all have different boundaries in different places. But every relationship has a form of boundaries, right? And we talked about one very important one last week, according to the scriptures, and that is the exclusivity that's found in marriage. And you need to know that while this has, for many of you that grew up over the last 20, 30 years, that has been a given in many of your minds. It's not a given moving forward. There are plural concepts of marriage coming out all over the place right now, right? So in the future, a marriage won't be him and her. It'll be, it'll be him, her, and her, or her, him, and him. It's just going to be some other kind of form of that, right? Why? Because people today believe that love belongs to them, not to God. And what God did was he said, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come together, right? I want you to come together. And this is what I did with my wife. I said, I'm going to belong to you and you're going to belong to me. And that exclusivity is what makes our relationship special. Now, I love a lot of these folks in the church, but I don't love you the way I love my wife. Like there's something different. She is, there is something about the connection that we have that is different than any other person in the church. Why? Because that exclusivity is what makes that relationship special. And, 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 then, and then we draw boundaries around those things and we say, here's what happened. Like, don't go outside of this boundary. Don't go outside this boundary because when you do so, it's gonna hurt me and it's gonna wreck our marriage. This is exactly what happened to humanity. In the garden, when God was interacting with humanity and everything was perfect, Adam and Eve were in love with one another and they loved God and God walked with them in the cool of the day. They could see God, actually see God and walk with God. I don't even know what that's like. I don't even have a frame of reference for what that looks like. But there they were in perfect communion with God and the crafty serpent comes in and he says, hey, listen, maybe you can find happiness outside of God. The first sin was not pride. Everyone says that. The first sin was finding happiness in the wrong place. He said, listen, I'm going to find, I'm going to, you could, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in the, in the story is there's a boundary around the tree. Don't eat here. Don't eat here. I've given you everything else in the garden. You could do anything you want with everything in the garden. It's all yours. You're the steward over it. You're like Lord of everything, but just take this one tree and I'm put a boundary around it. Don't cross it. Because if you cross it, then we're going to have problems, right? And what happened was, Satan said, listen, he's holding back on you because if you just actually eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be a little bit more like God. You'll know both good and evil. And the interesting and really crazy thing about it is Satan was not lying. <laughs> they did become a little bit more like God and in the process became a whole lot less like God because now they understood good. They understood that before, but now they understood what evil was like. But it wasn't something that they understood out here. It became a part of us. And like a giant stone or mediator, a meteor hitting uh, an ocean, 
it rippled throughout time and space. That is the reason why our hearts are prone to walk away from God. That's why we're easy to rebellion. Why? Because we want to find happiness outside of God. And the only way to fix that was to say, and this is what God did for us. He's like, listen, the boundary was broken and I want you to, I'm going to fix it. But one day I'm going to send someone, Jesus. I'm going to send someone one day to fix this boundary. But right now you need to know that you broke our boundary. And when boundaries are crossed in a marriage, there's heartbreak and there's, 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 there's you know, pain that comes along with that. In the same way, in the same way, that's exactly what happened with God. In the New Testament, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. And it says that there are times when through our behavior, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, which means that he, he thinks and he feels. And so he watches us sometimes and he goes, Mike, why are you doing that? Like, well, you're off track. You're not on the path. You're like walking there. And it's not like some objective judge sitting on a bench, just looking at you going, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're right, you're wrong, you're right, you're wrong, you're right. No, he looks at you and he goes, man, that's, you're my kid. And you're, you're blowing it right now. You're messing it up. It hurt him. And so he expelled them from the garden. And ever since we've been expelled. In order to fix a relationship where you break the boundary sometimes like that, you need a third person to come between you and to mediate. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you were the person who was cheated on or you did the cheating, you feel horrible as a result of it. And on the other side of that, you had, you had to introduce a third party to say, hey, I'm gonna mediate. I'm gonna help you guys get back together. And you absolutely can do that. But you needed someone else. In the same way, our relationship with the father was broken when we found our happiness outside of him. And I know some of you right now, you go, hold on a second. That Adam and Eve story, cool. But I didn't do that. So I shouldn't be accountable for that. But that's fine. That's, I mean, you did the same thing yesterday and the day before. You're like, no, no, Adam and Eve messed it all up for us. No, you did. Like, you blew it too. I did too. I blew it yesterday, driving down the road. Blew it. Just happens every day. So in order to fix it, God sent his son into the world as a counselor between us. And he said, this offending party and this offending party the only way for you guys to be restored is for, me to, is for me to die. The reason why the early church had such a view of self-sacrifice and of dying to self is because that's how Jesus modeled it for us. He said, I want to bring you back and make you whole again. And the only way for me to do that is to lay my life down for you. This is love. Not that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. I want you to go to verse 11. 11 says this, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love him, but if we love him or we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So he's saying this, dear friends, since God so loved us, it begins with him always because he loved us first, because he loved us first, we ought to love one another. Right? This is not like a should or an ought in, the, in that sense. It's an ought in the sense that when you've really been changed by God, his love, which comes from him, flows out through you to other people. Sometimes I think we just have to unblock that channel and say to, say to ourselves, you know what? I'm going to walk in the love that God has given to me. Right? Since, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. It's interesting that he says that. No one's ever seen God. I don't, I've never seen him. I mean, if you have, there are medications for that. Right? Like, but, but. If, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. This should say through us. That's what that means. 
So, so basically, um, just like I can't see the air right now, but I can see the effect of the air, we can see through our love in the world the effect of God in our life. And that's what he's basically talking about right there. It's important for us to recognize that uh, God is working through us. Verse 13 says this. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his Holy Spirit, verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son into to be the Savior of the world. This is how we know that we live in him. How do I know that my, my life is really in Christ? How do I know that I'm really a follower of him? How do I know that my love expresses my relationship with God? This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. We know because he's given us the Holy Spirit. There is something unique about a Christian that is different than every other person in the world. We have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, and it says guaranteeing what is gonna come down the road. That your future is not in jeopardy. Your future is not based on a random set of circumstances. Your future cannot be stolen from you. The future is guaranteed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been given as a deposit Watch this. And we have seen and we testify. Because the Holy Spirit is inside of us, we see and we testify. What do you mean we see? We see differently. You and I, when the world is falling apart, we see opportunities for ministry to take place. When the plagues hit Europe, Christians gathered together and said, what will we do to help those who are hurting, dying? You know what? We'll hurt and, we'll hurt, we'll hurt and die along with them. Because that's what we do. Because we have the Holy Spirit. To die is gain. So we lay our lives down. What we do is we see the world differently. When everything's falling apart, Christians look with optimism, not with fear. We don't jump on the bandwagon of anger. <laughs> we see differently. And you know what we also do? We testify. So um, these are not my glasses. They're, they're genuinely not. I got these at the drugstore because when I was in Paris, I lost my glasses. And uh, so... I can see really, really clear. But the thing that you don't know is that when I've been looking up like this, I can't see any of you at all. Like not even remotely. I can see your blue shirt and your something shirt. Like, you know, like I just like, I can't see you at all. They're just, they're readers. They're not real glasses. So this last week I went to um, Warby Parker on, on Park Avenue. Great experience, by the way, if you have to get eyeglasses. This sermon brought to you by Warby Parker. Um, yeah, check in the mail for that. Um, so I'm there and I'm just, you know, I had to get an eye exam uh, by the eye doctor and she says, you know, come on back. And I went on back. I'm always nervous. I hate that little puff of, you know, air and they can't touch my eyes at all. It's, I'm a nightmare. And so, but I go in there and I'm, I try to offset my nightmarishness by being friendly. And so I'm like, so do you like being an optometrist? She's like, yeah, I do. And we talked and I said, yeah, all the optometrists I've ever talked to, like, which is five. And, uh, uh, you know, they really like it too. And we just kept talking and talking. And we, for some reason, we got to, into a very serious conversation. And I started telling her about the birth of my first son, right? Um, if you haven't been around Grace for a while, I'll tell this story down the road. It is, and this is not, this is not being overly literal. Uh, it's, it's a miracle. I mean, he was, he was born two pounds, nine ounces. My wife was in a coma and she was paralyzed afterwards from this part down for a while. It was just a disaster. One of the last things that happened uh, as that we were um, at Winnie Palmer downtown and uh, we were just having him come in for a regular checkup. And the doctor comes in and, you know, he's looking, he's doing the, I don't know what they're doing when they're tapping and doing all this, you know, just, I, I think it's fake. Anyway, but, but, but uh, they're, they, you know, he takes, the, he takes the eye, he's taking the thing, he looks in the eyes and he goes, hold on, I'll be right back. And he comes back with an ophthalmologist 
And uh, the ophthalmologist, and there's two of them, and they're looking in the eye, and they're, they're just, you know, and that's never good. So we're looking at the eye, and he goes, yeah, there's, there's a problem here. Um, he has what's called a retinoblastoma, which is uh, an eye cancer. It's a tumor in the eyeball. And not being super, he's probably a great technician, but not a great bedside manner. He says, listen, uh, the best case scenario is we're gonna have to take his eye out and the, the worst case scenario is spread to his brain or somewhere else and he'll die. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send you down to Shan's Hospital, University of Florida uh, tomorrow, because you need to go now and uh, I'll get an appointment for you and I want you to see some specialists over there. And so what we do, because I'm a science guy, I love science. I, I read it as, almost as much science as I do Bible. I love science. I've been just wired that way. Um, and so, but I'm also a faith guy. And the Bible tells us that we are, when someone is sick, that we are to take them before the elders of the church. Not just like, you know, I have a cold, because that's annoying. But, uh, but like, but, you know, like if you're really, really sick, bring them before the elders of the church and the elders will pray. And the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. And so I brought Clayton, um, two pounds, nine ounces to the elders and we prayed for him. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but we just, you know, laid hands on him and we prayed for him and said, God, we know that you can do all things. You are all powerful. Uh, we trust you. No matter what the outcome is, we're still on your team. And then we took him to Shans and we got down there and I'm telling her this whole story. She's just like, you know, riveted. And uh, we get to Shans and the first ophthalmologist comes in and uh, looks in the thing and the next guy looks in, three of them come in. And uh, I'm like, this is terrible. And uh, they come back and they go, I'm sorry, I don't know why you were sent here. He has no retinoblastoma, nothing in his eye whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it really was, it really was a miracle. And I was telling her this and she's got tears in her eyes. And, uh, and uh, she, you know, she said, um, she said, this is like the best thing. She's like, look at my arms. And she had goosebumps all the way up and down her arms, right? I said, I don't know if you're religious. And she stayed quiet, which means no. And, uh, and I said, I said, you know, um, I don't know if you're religious or not, but I actually just believe that Jesus healed my son. And she got on her knees. No, she didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, but, but she did say, you know, this has been the best part of my day. I think sometimes we need to realize we have to see things differently than the world does. And then we have to tell the world about it. And what we're telling the world about is not four spiritual laws or something. That's great. That worked at all time. It doesn't work today, right? But what, it, what, it, what does work? is tell the more beautiful story of what God has done in your life to someone who's far from God because goosebumps are a next step toward Christ. Because for her, whether or not she believed or she didn't believe, she walked out of that going, huh, that was something that I've never experienced before. And it'll open her up to the next opportunity when God brings the next person along to go, hey, God can do amazing things. God can use your voice to change the world. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to be able to participate in the kingdom work. Lord, we want to testify to your glory, to your goodness. We want to do it, Lord, by not being activists that run around screaming about our rights. Instead, God, we want to solve practical problems in the world so that even when the world criticizes us as the church, the Bible says their voices will be silenced because we've done such good in the world. Lord, may that be our lives individually and may it be our church as a whole. We love you. We're grateful. Thank you for being a God who does miracles. It's in your name we pray. Amen.